All right, now that we've finished praying, we shall look into Isaiah. And this morning the plan is to finish up Isaiah 45. I usually do a little introduction uh, to get the context uh, before we get started. And to get the context today, we're going to look back at Isaiah chapter 40, which is at the very beginning of um, the last part of the book. The first 39 books, first 35 books were basically prophecy. Then we have three, excuse me, the first 39, 35 chapters, and then the next three chapters are historical. And then on chapter 40, we start back into prophecy. And the sum of what is, the sum of what God teaches in Isaiah 40 through 55 uh, is summed up a lot in Isaiah chapter 40. This sets the tone, in other words, for the next, for the next 16 chapters. And so I will just read some of this, some of these verses and comment on this. Now remember, Israel is in exile. They're wondering if God has abandoned them, if He even cares. And even if He does care, is He capable of bringing them back to the land? Remember, the temple is in ruins and the people are being treated very badly in Babylon. God says in the beginning of this, can you get me some water? God says in the beginning of this, <clears throat> comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. They, these are people that are undergoing a lot of stuff. Our warfare is ended. <coughs> Our iniquity is pardoned. <coughs> and pardon me too. That she has received from the Lord, Lord's hand, double for all her sins. So God's telling them, there's going to come a point where it's all going to be over. I haven't forgotten you. And then a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert, highway for our God. God's going to come to them. They're in Babylon, but God is going to come to them. And then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. <clears throat> so God is coming to His people. Thank you. And then He tells the people to go on a high mountain and proclaim the greatness of the Lord. And then at the end it says, Behold your God at the end of verse 9. And the Lord comes with might. And He is going to reward His people. He's going to recompense them. He's going to tend them like a tender shepherd. And He'll carry them in His bosom. So, good things are ahead. <clears throat> the people have problems. <clears throat> so God tells them things over and over. Like, you got to forsake your idols. you got to trust in Me. Things of this nature. <clears throat> so we'll go over now to back to Isaiah 45. We got through verse 8 last time. So we're going to look at verses 9 through 13. 
13. <clears throat> okay. Let's start over here in the back with Oliver. 45, 9 through 13, if you could read that for us. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What are you beginning? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, and you command me. I have made the all and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. And let my exiles go flee, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> These people do not like the way things are going. They are virtually saying, they are the clay saying to the potter, why are you doing all this to me? Alright, so in your notes, in verse 9 it appears that the Jews are not happy with the way things are going, <clears throat> being in captivity. Of course, they don't like that. <clears throat> In addition to that, they're also unhappy with the prophecy that a thoroughly pagan king like Cyrus will send them back to the land. This is just not the way things are supposed to be going. So, in your notes there, in your blank, they want their own way of salvation. The Jews aren't happy with the way God is going to save them. And they say to him, why are you doing it this way? <clears throat> they have a quarrel with Yahweh. So, this seems to be a problem even now, right? We don't like the way God does things. Okay, let's look at Romans 9, 19-23. Uh, Eden, if you can read that for us. Um, nine. Well, I had it here just a sec. Nineteen through twenty-three. Okay, so the people in Isaiah's day had a problem with God's way of salvation. And the people of Paul's day has problems with God's way of salvation. And I think people even now have a problem with God's way of salvation. 
God just does not have the right to choose the way He wants to save people. He doesn't have the right to choose who's going to be saved and who doesn't. That destroys man's free will. So you see, we still have that same problem. We still have the clay saying to the potter, why have you made me like this? Why are you doing things like this? It's what they don't realize is, um, before I say that, John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. That's probably the most hated verse in Scripture by um, non-Christians. Only one way of salvation. How arrogant. Christians think that's the only way to be saved is coming to Jesus. Well, that's what God says. There's one way of salvation. You better be thankful you have a way of salvation. Just like these people in Babylon say should say, God, I don't care how you save us, just save us. We just want a way of salvation. But see, arrogant man wants it his way. And we still have that, and people say that God doesn't have the right to sovereignly choose some and to pass over others. That just destroys man's free will. That's just not fair. All right. God replies in your notes that He has absolute sovereign right over them. He is the Creator of all things. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all the people who dwell therein. That's what people seem to realize. This is God's world. He runs it the way He wants to. He created it. He has an absolute sovereign right to govern it the way He wants to. So God is the potter and they are the clay. Just like even now. God is the potter, we are the clay. God ordains all things and God has determined the way of salvation for them and for us. So we see this was a problem with those people, a problem with the people in the early New Testament church, a problem with us now. A problem that we just can't let God be God. Okay, any questions or comments on those on verses nine through thirteen there? Okay. Then verses fourteen through twenty five. Um Avonley, could you read that for us? Thus says the Lord. The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabines men of stature shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded, and they could have idols go and confuse together. 
that Israel is saved from the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret, in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge, who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I myself I have sworn from the mouth that has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, all righteousness and strength, to him shall come and be ashamed. All who were incensed against him, and the Lord, all the offspring of Israel, shall be justified and shall glory. Okay, <clears throat> these verses in your notes are exceedingly good news to God's faithful remnant. Tells them a lot of good things in these. Uh, in verses 14 through 17, He's telling them that they will have dominion. We see that um, the wealth of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of statute shall come over to you and be yours and they shall follow you and shall come over in chains and bow down to you. This would probably be very hard for these poor old captives to believe. But God says that it may not happen in their lifetime, but that is going to happen. There will be a harvest even among the Gentiles. Um, there's some people that say that there's just no hope for the Gentiles in the Old Testament. They're not really mentioned as being a part of God's kingdom, but that is not true. So, um, God declares in verses 18 and 19 that He alone is the Creator. And He alone has the right to declare what is right. God alone has um, authority to declare what is right. And He has openly done so. Now, only a person that knows all of the facts exhaustively are in, is in position to declare what is right. If you don't know all of the facts exhaustively, then you are not able to declare what is right. So, no man that's ever lived on this earth knows enough to declare what is right. That's why we have to go to the Bible and the Bible alone for our authority. God knows every fact exhaustively, so He alone has the authority and the right and the ability to declare what is right. And then Yahweh is the one who brings about all things. 
and not impotent idols. Verses 20 and 21, kind of like a courtroom scene. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare your and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. So, so included in all this is that there is one way of salvation. God's way. And he says in verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. One way of salvation, God's way. The ESV Study Bible, which is a good study Bible, makes this comment about verses 20 through 22. And I want to get your comment on this. God invites all nations to renounce their idols and worship Him alone. My question is, is this an invitation? Are we invited to believe? Kind of like on Sunday morning in a lot of churches. We have the pastor, not here, but in a lot of churches that... They are invited to come down to the front of the church and make their profession of Christ and show their belief in Christ. Is this an invitation? No. Huh? No. Okay. All right. So we're finished. It's a command. All right. Avonlea, will you look up for us 1 John 3, 23? No, I mean, uh, the lady. 1 John 3, 23. <clears throat> and read that when I tell you to. Now, let me tell you this. These verbs, gather yourselves together and come and turn to me are all commands. They're in the imperative. They are commanded to gather together. They're commanded to come. They're commanded to turn. They're commanded to repent. God does not invite them to. They are wicked, wicked people. And God commands them to turn. Read 1 John 3, 23, please. And this is His commandment. Alright, this, why should you believe in God? Because God commands you to do it. It is not an invitation to come to Christ and profess Him. It is a commandment. We by nature are very wicked people, dead in trespasses and sins, and God can't do anything but command us to turn to Him, to turn to His Son to repent and believe. So, um, I don't know, it kind of makes me queasy when I hear a pastor say, Jesus invites you to believe. Bill? Yeah. Many years ago, before uh, 
by God's grace, I found the Reformed faith. I was a member of a church, and I, I'm going to make reference to this church a couple times in the sermon today. It so happens. I don't know how it all wound up this way. But at any rate, um, this was an Arminian church in its theology. And uh, the man who was pastor there, most of the time that I was there, did not like Calvinism at all. And so that's what got me interested in it, because he was constantly teaching me it, which got, led me, I never thought through any of these issues. Yeah. But I'll never forget one of the things that he said over and over again to the congregation. He would give altar calls and invitations, and it was always, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He will not overrule you. He will, he will not do anything to upset you or take over. He's a gentleman. You have to invite him. Yeah, it doesn't say anywhere that the potter invites the clay to go go turn itself into something. Okay. Okay. Anything else on that? Any other comments on that comment in the ESV Bible? Study Bible. Okay. Okay, again in verse 22 in your notes, God announces the way of salvation. Repent and believe. He commands all men everywhere to repent. And He commands you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 3. Those who do not believe stand condemned already. All of those outside of Christ are standing condemned and are commanded to believe in Christ. And eventually, everybody's going to bow the knee to Him anyway. Jesus is Lord. Alright, verses 23 through 25 show that God will receive glory from all people, either willingly or under compulsion. And Alanda, if you'll look up for us, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. It appears that many will come to Him willingly, that is, on earth, showing that His church will have dominion. And then finally, the last thing in your notes there, they will be justified in the Lord. The last verse. Um, says, In the Lord all the offspring of the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Notice they'll be justified in the Lord. That is, God's way of salvation. That is, through faith in His Son as the Redeemer of themselves and all creation. All right, now that Alanda's had time to look that up, we will read Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so we see that that's going to happen. It may not happen in history, but every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, 
that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, anybody have anything else then on Isaiah 45? The Son as the Redeemer of themselves and all creation. You're justified only in the Lord. Man cannot invent a way to be justified. You're justified only in the Lord. You don't have any righteousness of your own, even now. The righteousness we have is an alien righteousness. That is, it's from Jesus Christ. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We can't come up with any righteousness of our own. Alright, that leads us to Isaiah 46. And I need somebody to hand these out. While we will have Joshua, you're next. You want to read for us Isaiah 46? Uh, yeah, it's 13 verses. That's not all that big. Yeah, we may not get through all 13 verses, but we'll read them. <clears throat> Bell boweth, or boweth down, Nebo stupid, their idols were upon the beasts, and upon the cattle, their carriages were heavy, loaden, they are burdened, they are a burden to the weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnants of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the root womb. And even to your old age, I am he, even to hoary hairs, will I carry you. I have made, and I will put you. What I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry, and will deliver you. To whom will ye liken me? And make me equal, and compare me, that we may be alike. They lavish gold out of the bag, and weigh silver in the balance, and hire a goldsmith, and maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear upon him, or they bear him upon the shoulders. They carry him and set him in his place, and he standeth. But from his place shall he not remove. Yea, one shall cry unto him, yet he cannot answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this, and show yourselves men. Bring it again into mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executed my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will also do it. Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted, that are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, but I will place my salvation in Zion, for Israel my glory. 
Kim, look up for us, please, Hosea chapter 8, verse 4. I'll tell you when to read. Alright, the themes in this chapter repeat earlier themes in this book. The people seem to have spiritual amnesia and continually need reminders. So chapter 46 concerns the idols in Babylon. And then in chapter 47 coming up will concern the destruction of Babylon. But right now, themes that have already been uh, explored in this book the foolishness of idolatry and the sovereignty of God and that God is the only true God. Kim, will you read for us now Hosea chapter 8, verse 4. They have set up a king, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols. Therefore shall they be destroyed. Alright. They have made their idols for their own destruction. They have made idols for their own destruction. That's what we see time and again in this book. Baal and Nebo, or Nabo, they are Babylonian gods. We run into them, the first line of chapter 46. They're usually put on carts and they're carried in parades by beasts. <clears throat> which is also described in the first two verses. As we see, they're idols. They are placed on beasts. They're carried about. They stoop and they bow down together. But we read also, however, that they themselves are helpless and they will go into captivity. So these are gods they have, Baal and Nabo. And... They are carried about in carts, totally helpless. And Isaiah says they're going to be going into captivity. They're so impotent, they're going to be sent into captivity. But we see in contrast, the true God, Yahweh, has carried Israel from its birth. He is the faithful and true God, and He will not forsake them. We see that in verses 3 and 4. As opposed to these false gods that cannot even save themselves, in fact, they are led into captivity, Yahweh is a true and faithful God. And He has carried them and He will save them. And I'm going to read, leave this. Uh, we're going to wrap up this passage today and come back to it next week. But I want to uh, do read something very practical for us here. Uh, uh, something to end for you to think about because it's very important. This is uh, out of Ortland's, Raymond Ortland's pre, uh, commentary on Isaiah and the Preaching the Word series. He says in here, God is inviting us. That's what he says. God is commanding us to trust Him so freely and esteem Him so highly and prize Him so richly that we turn to Him alone and enter into the salvation for which we're all groping. God has hidden everything delightful in Jesus Christ, and everything outside Him destroys us. The hymn writer has 
prophetic eyes when the hymn writer says, In the cross of Christ our glory, towering over the wrecks of time. End quote. So he says, where is Marxism today? It's one of the wrecks of time. An old, defunct idol. Where is the secular humanist today? Where is the utopian socialist today? Have you listened carefully to John Lennon's song, Imagine? Who can believe that anymore? Well, a lot of people do. Uh, this omni-explanatory omni claims that once compelled the attention of the world are looking more and more dated and tired and dusty in our post-everything age. There is a growing weariness with all the grand ideologies today. The idols are bowing down and stooping over, like Bell and Nabo so long ago. Why? Why do we see this repeated pattern of man-centered hopes passionately pursued only to accelerate our misery. The prophets knew why. They knew that our salvation is not anywhere in the creation, but only in the Creator. God is there making sure that the cross of Christ towers over all the wrecks of time. As we think through this, if we, as we think through, remember that Babylon... This is what I want to get at. Babylon is not just a culture of a bygone era. In the Bible, Babylon is a cipher for the whole of world culture outside of Christ. The Bible is showing us the essence of the world in our day and in all days until the end. And then he goes on to say on the next page, we're influenced in ways we don't notice. That's a sobering comment, and I think it's true. We are influenced in ways we don't notice. We have the enticing world to contend against. We have the flesh always rising up. And we have the devil who's walking around seeking to devour you, seeking to devour me. And I want to tell you this, as your elder, that you're an easy target. If you're not in God's Word every day, learning His Word, learning about Himself and His enemies, then you are an easy target for the world of flesh and the devil. You're about to be devoured. So it is most necessary for us to be in touch with God every day by prayer and by reading, studying His Word. And that's where I'm going to end. I'll ask Chase if you will close us in prayer.